God, we do declare together that you are unstoppable. And God, as we journey through the book of Acts together, reading about this unstoppable church, God, it's our desire, Father, God, to become an unstoppable church. God, not because, Father, we have it together, not because of our strength, our talents, our skills, but simply because we serve an unstoppable God. And so, Father, would you continue that unstoppable work here today, God, by speaking to us, by changing us, by healing us, God, by delivering us. Father, as we open your word, would you open our eyes, our minds, our ears, and our hearts to hear from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning to you all. Uh, If you are visiting with us this morning, we're especially grateful that you're here. Um, If I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, my name is Jason. I have the honor of serving as lead pastor here at the church, and I would love to meet you before you leave. Um, If you are visiting with us today, something to know about Solid Rock, um, if you're looking for a church that has it all together, um, this probably isn't the place for you. Um, If you're looking for a church where you can can pretend to be something that you're not and kind of hide the real you, this may not be the place for you. Uh, But if you're looking for a place to be real, uh, to be broken, uh, to bring uh, the mess that, uh, that we make with our lives together under the grace of Jesus, this may be a great place for you. Um, we desire to be more of a hospital than a hotel here at Solid Rock. We know that Jesus has come to save and to serve the sick, not those who are healthy. And uh, so let me just say, you've come to a, a place of sick people, spiritually speaking, uh, people who are desperate in desperate need of the grace of Jesus. And so welcome, I'm glad you're here. I hope that you find this to be that, that kind of place where you can just be real, um, whether it's meeting with our prayer partners and just kind of being transparent with what you're going through or meeting with our elders or in our community group ministry, our counseling ministry. Um, this truly is a place to be real um, under the grace of Jesus. And so I hope that you felt that already coming in. A um, couple of things. Uh, we're gonna be in Acts chapter 20 and 21 today. We're gonna finish 20 and then we're gonna start 21. Um, and, uh, and this will wrap up Paul's third missionary journey. So if you're a person who likes to turn ahead of time, go ahead and flip to Acts 20. While you do that, I've got some, some announcements to make. So uh, in May, in our all-member meeting, we made a couple of update announcements on the new building and the timeline and the financing and all that. And, uh, and so we've been ironing out more details since then. I want to just give you a fresh update on where we are. Um, and so as we mentioned in that all-member meeting, um, we had planned and expected for remodel work to precede the actual new buildings, um, but we weren't sure on the timeline. So I've got somewhat of a rough draft of that timeline uh, to give you today. So what we're hoping to do is to start our remodel work in September, which will basically be the building that's attached to this one, just down the hallway, that admin and student building will become our, our nursery um, through kindergarten space. And so in September, we're planning on starting that leg of the work and getting it done before we start new construction. Now, originally, we were planning on starting new construction in September, so that will put off the new construction to the end of the year, like January of 2018. So we're doing it that way for a couple of reasons. One, we want to get that remodel part done, at least the first stage, so that our kiddos are over here. Uh, before we start the new construction. But also, that will allow us to continue saving money for that down payment. And so we would expect to have somewhere around three quarters of a million dollars by the end of this year saved up cash on hand, which just puts us in even a better position when it comes to thinking about borrowing and that sort of thing. 
I'm still believing, though, that God can, and, 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 and if he desires to, to pay for this building up front and to go into it debt-free, uh, we're leaving room for him to do that. But we're also making sure that we follow a prudent course uh, in order to make sure that we never get uh, strapped or submerged in debt as a church and aren't able to do ministry. So that's the plan right now. It's a rough draft of the plan. We submit that to God's will and let him unfold the details as we go along, but there's an update there on the new building and where we're at. So if you have any questions on that, you can always pull an elder aside or a staff member and get more information. All right, so we're gonna be in Acts chapter 20 to get started. We're gonna wrap up 20, uh, and then we're gonna start 21. Uh, If you're visiting with us, we are moving through the book of Acts as a church. Uh, We're not too far away from being done. Um, We've hit the part where the Apostle Paul uh, is the main person we're following in the storyline as the Holy Spirit guides him and empowers him for ministry. And last week we got to a place where he, he entered a town called Miletus. He called for the elders of Ephesus and he told them something really big. Okay, And here's what he said. Hey guys, um, I'm not sure about when or where, but every town I go to, the Holy Spirit reveals to me that prison and affliction await me. Now that being said, I'm headed to Jerusalem and then to Rome. And so Paul made that big announcement. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick up the story in Acts 20 after he finishes his speech to catch the response of the elders and then kind of journey with Paul as he heads to Jerusalem. And and one of the primary threads of the story we're going to see today is the response of the people to this big news and the way they pour their hearts out to God and they pray for Paul. They even at some point try to talk him out of it. And overall, we're going to be talking about the role of biblical prayer in our lives as we watch this tension kind of arise between the will of God and what the people wanted. I don't know if you've ever been there before, where you're praying for something that in the back of your mind, you're wondering if God actually wants that thing to happen. And there's a tension between what you want and quite possibly what God wants. And that's a, a moment of crisis of faith, right? Because I know what I want, but I'm discerning that God might want something different. And so by faith, I can submit to God's will or I can keep begging and trying to make something happen that may in fact not even be the will of God. So we're going to see that tension kind of emerge here with Paul's story. Let's pick this up in Acts chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 36. This is after Paul had talked to the elders and said, Guys, I'm headed to Jerusalem and Rome. Prison and affliction await me. Have a nice day. I'm about to leave. Verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. So this news from Paul to these elders from Ephesus broke their heart. Most of all, what they were hearing Paul say was this, that even though he doesn't know the time or the place, surely He's going to be thrown in prison, and most likely at this point in human history, to to get a a prison sentence was a death sentence. And so they were lamenting. Their hearts were broken because for them, what they were hearing is, we're never going to see you again. That's what we hear you saying, Paul. You're headed to Jerusalem, then you're headed to Rome. You're saying that you're you're going to run into some affliction and even be in prison. So what you're saying, Paul, is that the Holy Spirit is guiding you on a path that means we will never see you again. They begin to weep. They're on their knees with Paul praying. 
And already you can begin to feel a little bit of tension between what God wants to happen and what the people want to happen. And so Paul boards his ship and sets sail. We'll pick this up in chapter 21 now, verse 1. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Pentara. Now, a very subtle thing just happened with the word we. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He's the one who wrote it down. And now this is the second time in the book where he's not using the word they, he's using the word we, which means he meets up with Paul here in Miletus, and now he's part of the journey again, writing from a firsthand account. Now, that's going to be important later on in the story when we see even Luke's response to what God has in store for Paul. But Luke, who's writing this, he's a part of this journey now. And so he says that we set sail. And having found a ship... Crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Okay, a lot of towns you've probably never heard of. Okay, so let me just walk through, kind of throw the map up there again, so we can just get a mental picture of what's happening in Paul's life. So the first journey that we came across in, uh, in Paul's ministry started in Antioch, up there in the top right. And he and Barnabas and John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, came down to Salamis, the island of Cyprus, and they shared the Gospel there on the island, even leading the proconsul to faith in Jesus. It's a big moment in church history, Paul's first missionary journey. However, uh, when they came up to the mainland, up to Perga, uh, it was from there that they went up to the other Antioch of Galatia, then over to Iconium, then down to Lystra. If you remember, this is where Paul, the angry mob, finally caught up with Paul, and they drug him out into the city kind of public area, and they threw rocks at him until they thought he was dead. They stoned him. Then they drug him out to the trash heap and threw his body out, went back into town. His disciples came out there to care for Paul, potentially bury his body, and then he opens his eyes. He either wasn't dead or he came back to life, and he, he pops up, and, and the disciples are like, wow, we didn't expect this. What are we going to do? And Paul said, we're going to go back into town. And so Paul and his disciples go back into Lystra, and then they leave for Derby and share the gospel there. Then you might think, okay, mission's done. Let's take the shortcut to Antioch. They, they don't do that. What do they do? They start backtracking back through those same towns, caring for the young Christians and setting up elder leadership in the churches because that was so important it was worth risking their lives. So they came back through and backtracked down to Perga and then to Italia. And this is important because this is where John Mark bails on the mission. And John Mark leaves down this, botted, this bottom dotted line and heads back down to Jerusalem while Paul and Barnabas travel back across to Antioch. And we know from Paul's perspective, he felt abandoned by John Mark. Like he just couldn't handle the pressure for whatever reason. He was unfaithful. He abandoned them, which leads to the second missionary journey. So Paul's second missionary journey, once again, uh, leaving from Antioch, the same place, this time he doesn't set sail, he takes a foot journey to hit all those same cities and then expand the, the mission of the church all the way across Asia, then over to Macedonia, all the way down to Athens and Corinth. And we talked about that, how when, John, uh, when, when Barnabas and Paul split ways, because there was this... This, this tension between them, that even though they didn't handle it from a Christ-like perspective, God still blessed it, and he split their journeys apart and, and covered more ground because of it. Because Barnabas went back to Cyprus to encourage the believers there. 
And so Paul ends up uh, over in Ephesus, and then he sets sail back down to Caesarea, to Jerusalem, and back up to Antioch. That was his second journey. His third journey is a lot like this same pattern. This is where we are today. Okay, I just want to throw this up there real quick. So same thing, leaves from Antioch, but notice this time it ends in Jerusalem. Because the Holy Spirit had revealed to Paul, this is your ultimate destination. This is where I want to take you. And then from here, Paul goes to Rome. He's in prison. He dies there. And so here's where we are in the story. See at the bottom of Asia, you've got Miletus there. Last week, the elders from Ephesus came down to Miletus. Paul gives his speech. Then he kneels there on the beach there before he gets on the ship. They pray together. And then he gets on a ship and he set sail for Phoenicia. And then we read in there how Cyprus is on his left. They sail right past Cyprus all the way to Tyre, which is where the bulk of what we're going to cover today um, ha- happens. I want you to see that for this reason. So we saw in chapter 19 and 20, Paul clearly knows that affliction, imprisonment, and most likely death are awaiting him. Okay, every person in this room knows, hopefully you know, death awaits you, short of Jesus coming back. Well, that's one thing if it's like way off in the distance, right? I mean, I'm 40, about to be 41 next month. I'm probably over halfway done, right? I still got another good 30, 40 years lest something tragic happens, right? So it's one thing to have that perspective. It's a whole other thing to be at a place in your life where you realize that death is right around the corner. And as we see Paul make it all the way to Tyre, look how close he is to Jerusalem. There's not a whole lot more ground to cover, right, before, before he gets to the when and where of his affliction, his imprisonment, and ultimately his death. And so we're gonna kind of feel that tension now as the, as the Holy Spirit shows Paul this is what awaits him, and the Holy Spirit's going to begin to reveal that same thing to the church. They're going to be aware of what awaits Paul. So we'll pick this back up in Acts chapter 21, verse 5. So when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. Sound familiar? Doing the same thing they did back in Miletus. And we said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we we arrived in, my best shot at this name, Polemos. You're not supposed to put P's and T's together in English language. I don't know why in the world somebody would do that. Uh, Polemaeus. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. So brief pause. We've re-encountered Philip. Rewind all the way back to Acts chapter 6. Seven and eight is where we meet Philip. Philip was recruited as one of the seven first deacons, basically to wait tables. The, the work of ministry had just overwhelmed the apostles because the church was just exploding. So they recruited seven guys to help. Among those seven were Philip and Stephen. Okay? So in the very next chapter, chapter seven, Stephen gets killed. They throw rocks at him until he dies. He's the first martyr. martyr. Chapter eight, 
Philip is on his way leaving Jerusalem and he shares the gospel with an Ethiopian on the side of the road and leads him to Christ and baptizes him there. That's Philip. So recruited to wait tables and quickly becomes a church leader and evangelist. He's still on mission here. And this is who we've run into now uh, here in the story is Philip. Now, what we're about to encounter is this. So the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all believers And the Old Testament says, that God says through the Old Testament, that when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers, your young men and your young women will prophesy. That the Holy Spirit won't just be sent to certain people, but everybody will receive the blessing and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to see that play out now here in the story. So Philip, one of the seven, uh, is where they stayed. And he had, verse 9, four unmarried daughters who prophesied. But not only that, verse 10, while we were staying for many days, another prophet, a prophet named Agabus, came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. So this is a pretty peculiar moment, okay? It's going to help us understand what's happening. So we've got these uh, four daughters of Philip who are all prophets. Who were, you know, and the fact that they were prophets, they understood what God was doing. They could hear from the Holy Spirit. We've got another guy uh, who's a prophet. And he's going to walk up to Paul and say, Paul, um, God wants me to share something with you. And Paul says, okay, what do, what do you have to say? Um, I'm going to need your belt for a minute. And so he takes Paul's belt and he ties his hands and feet together. It's kind of a strange moment. This is what he says. He took Paul's belt and he bound his own hands and feet, or his feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. So, what is he saying? The Holy Spirit told me this. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, think about this from Paul's perspective. For days, weeks, maybe even months, the Holy Spirit had already been telling Paul this news, right? This was not new news to Paul, right? As if he needed another reminder that affliction, imprisonment, and probably death await him. Now the Holy Spirit is revealing the same thing to the churches, and they're beginning to see it for the first time. And so their response in this particular case is to come up to Paul and give him a warning, okay? Paul, I don't know if you know this or not, but here, let me have your belt, ties up his hands and feet, this is what's going to happen to you in Jerusalem, then you're going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And Paul there is like, right, thanks for that reminder. I I know that's what's going to happen. Then look at what happens next. When we heard this, what does the word we mean? It means that Luke was part of the conversation. Luke who wrote the gospel. Luke who's writing down the book of Acts for us. When we heard this, we... And the people urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Now, do you feel the dilemma? Whose will was it that Paul go to Jerusalem? Who was it who told Paul, we're headed to Jerusalem? The Holy Spirit. It was God's will. God said, Paul, get aboard a ship. We're headed to Jerusalem. And God had reiterated this vision to Paul over and over again. Every town he visited, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, We're headed to Jerusalem. Affliction and imprisonment await you. Now, the Holy Spirit is speaking that to the church. And the church is catching on. And they're realizing, wait a second, Paul. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested there. Are you prepared for that kind of outcome? And so here, they try to do what? 
they, including Luke, try to talk Paul out of being obedient to God. You feel the tension between what they wanted to happen versus what God wanted to happen? You've been there in your prayer life? God, please, this is what I want to happen. Begging God, maybe on your knees like these churches here. God, this is what we want to happen. We want it to go this way. I want this thing to happen. I want this person to like me. I want this job. I want... And there's a tension that emerges between what God does versus what you want. Now, as a community of faith, as Christians, we believe that God's wisdom is higher than ours, right? Isn't that what the word says? That his ways are not our ways, meaning the way I would go through life is not necessarily the way God would chart my journey through life. Case in point, the Apostle Paul's life. You think he grew up as a little boy thinking, man, I cannot wait one day to set sail for Jerusalem and be arrested and handed over to the Gentiles. My lifelong dream, I can't wait. Finally, it's here. Almost there. Right? But what God has planned for Paul from his perspective is better than what he could plan for himself, even if it includes trials and hardships. And here on the banks, on the beach, even the Christians who are prophesying, seeing what the Holy Spirit wants for Paul, are saying, oh, Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. And they're trying to talk Paul out of following God's will for his life. Verse 13, then Paul answered and asked an obvious question, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Right? Don't you think my heart's broken enough? What are you doing? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What are you doing? Why are you trying to talk me out of obeying God? For I am ready to be in prison and even to die. Let's talk for a moment about prayer. And I want to offer up to you something you may already be familiar with. It's, a, it's an acronym uh, built off the word ACTS that reminds us of the different elements of prayer. Okay, And then we need to be reminded because if you're anything like me, the primary element in my prayer, li- prayer life is, God, this is what I want. Anybody else like that? It's what I want you to do. It's what I want you to provide. It's the way I want things to go. It's what we call supplication. Here's what I want you to supply for me. And that tends to be the primary element and theme of my prayer life. So it's so important for us to take a step back and look at the different elements of prayer. And so there's a helpful acronym that has been around for for a number of years. I didn't come up with it. Matter of fact, I learned this in high school. Um, Built off the word ACTS. We'll put it up on the screen. Starting with the letter A, we're reminded that adoration should be part of our prayer life. That's where we adore God. We esteem God. We, right, we remind our own hearts how amazing he is. And we express adoration. Uh, confession. Okay? This is that element of saying, God, here's what I've done. I own it. I did it. I'm responsible for it. I confess it, and I ask for your forgiveness. Thanksgiving. 
This is where we stop before we ask for anything and we thank God for what he's already done, what he's already provided, and we express our hearts in gratitude. God, thank you for my family. Thank you for the fact that I have a job. Thank you for the fact that you've given me children even though they won't obey me. Thank you for giving me this relationship even though she's a pain in my neck. Thank you. We thank God before we ask for anything. And then, of course, supplication. We get to the point in our prayers where we ask God, here's what I want to happen. Well, what I want to point out from Acts 21 for us today is I think there's a missing element from this acronym we're going to add in today. But what I want to do, I want to take a step back. I want to look at how Jesus taught us to pray. There's a model prayer that Jesus lays out for us in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount that we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Now, one of the mistakes we make with this prayer is that we often attribute it to kind of a JV prayer life. Like, this is just to help you get started in Sunday school, and then when you graduate and go on to varsity prayer, you add bigger words in, right? You add more theology, you extend your prayer life out to make it your prayers longer, but we treat the Lord's Prayer as though it's kind of some JV prayer, and we forget that Jesus is actually teaching his disciples how to pray, right? The apostles were taught to pray this way. Let's look at the Lord's Prayer together and look for these elements So starting in verse 7 of Matthew 6, Jesus says this, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. What are empty phrases? That's what I call God talk. Where we just offer up, we put words like blessing and hope and soul and these religious words in there. But the phrases themselves don't actually mean anything. It's just these empty religious phrases. Evidently, that was part of the way that they would pray publicly here at this day and time. I don't know if you've ever witnessed any of that uh, in the churches that you've been to, but he says, hey, let's don't pray that way. They think they're going to be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. What a profound statement. God already knows what you need before you ask Him. So prayer, then, is not me informing God of what He's unaware of, is it? It's not me coming to God and saying, oh God, I don't know if you realize or not, but my job's getting a little rough, my coworkers are treating me horribly, there's tension in the room, I need you to fix this situation. God already is aware of the situation and what you need. And so some will stop there and say, well then why pray? And we're going to go on and, and answer that question as well. So don't be like them. God, your Father, knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. And so Jesus says, here's how you need to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, did you notice some of the elements of the acronym of Acts in that prayer? There's some obvious ones, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's an interesting word. Has anybody used that word yet today? Hallowed. There's a reason why we don't use it, because it really only applies to one person, and that's God himself. You can't actually use this word and it apply to anybody else, because it means to be holy, set apart, and perfect, and, 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 and different from all lesser things. Okay? So if something is hallowed, it's the highest thing. Nothing else can be like it. And so when we attribute this to God, right, it fits. Hallowed be your name. That's a beautiful expression of adoration, isn't it? God, before I ask for anything, before I get any further in my prayer, 
Let me just remind my heart of who you are. You are set apart, holy. There's none like you. Now, Mary, the mother of Jesus, uses this word in her prayer in Luke 1. After it's been revealed to her that she's going to give birth to Jesus, she uses this word, and I want to look at it with you in Luke 1, how she uses this word for God. In verse 46, we read this, that Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Does that sound like a thankful heart? And then she says, and holy or hallowed is his name. And so just in that one word, we have this expression of adoration and thankfulness in our prayer life. So yeah, we get adoration, thanksgiving, right? In this beautiful Lord's Prayer. How about confession? Do you see confession in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us of our debts or trespasses or sins as we forgive our debtors. Now think about that for a minute. If God already knows what our sins are, why do we have to even confess them? Because God knowing what your sins are is only part of the struggle. God has called us to own our sins. There's a difference between saying, I know I messed up, let's move on, and stopping to walk, step out into the light, into the presence of God, and name it. God, I did that. I own it. I'm responsible. I said those harsh words to my wife. I acted out in anger towards my children. I deceived my coworker. I did it, right? God already knew I did it, but as I step out into the light, I begin to participate in repentance and say, God, not only are you aware of that, I need to own that. It's me. I'm responsible for that. I own that sin, and I ask you to forgive me. See, confession is an important part of our prayer life. Before we ever get to supplication and what we want to happen, adoration, confession, thanksgiving. Now, is there room in Jesus' model prayer for supplication? Absolutely. It's the biggest part of content in his prayer. What did he say? Give us this day our daily bread. He's asking for something. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. These are things Jesus is teaching us to ask the Father for. So is it right to say, dear God, please provide for my family what we need. Provide this job. Help us make it. Absolutely. Dear God, please provide what is needed. God is a loving father. and, I, and, I, and it's, it's an esteeming thing when my boys bring something to me that's broken and they ask me to fix it. Like, they just think too much of me. They do. They just think that I can fix anything, and they'll bring me something that's just mangled and broken. Oh, Dad, can you fix it? I'm like, you think I am, right? And it esteems me. It, it honors me. I think it honors the Father when we bring things to him that we need, that are broken, things we want. Because, and, and what we're saying is, God, you're able to do this, right? Whether you do it or not is up to you, but you're able. That's an esteeming thing to God to bring him your wants and your desires and, and from your perspective, what your needs are. Keeping in mind what? He knows what you need before you ask him. So you're not informing him of what he doesn't know. What you're esteeming to him, you're saying, I think you're able to fix this thing. I'm bringing it to you because you're able. So we have 
adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, right? This model prayer. But when we go back to the book of Acts, we see that there's another element to prayer that's actually missing from the acronym. Let's go back to the book of Acts together, again in chapter 21. Remember what Paul said? What are you doing? What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For am I not ready to be in prison, but even, not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus? And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said what? Let the will of the Lord be done. Luke, the author, is confessing that he was on the wrong side of this coin for a while. He was a part of the group saying, don't go to Jerusalem. We know what's going to happen to you there. Well, how do you know what's going to happen to you there? The Holy Spirit told me what he has in store for you. And Paul says, what are you doing? Trying to talk me out of doing what the Holy Spirit told you I'm supposed to do. And Luke says, once we realized that we could not talk Paul out of obeying God, we then did what? We submitted. And we said, then let the will of the Lord be done. And so I would add this element to the acronym, submission. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and in the end, submission. Um, as an elder body, we try to model this prayer for you. Uh, James chapter 5 says there's something going on in your life, there's sickness in your life. Bring it to the elders, let them lay hands on you and pray for you. And from time to time, you guys will come to us and ask for prayer over a certain situation job loss, illness, big decision, restoration of marriage, whatever it might be. And we're always honored to take the overseer part of what we do, the agenda, set it aside, talk with you and pray with you. It's always an honor. You're never putting us out. Like People sometimes are hesitant to come to us. We love doing that. But one of the things I hope you hear in our prayers for you is this. God, we believe you're able. Heal this sickness, restore this marriage, fix what is broken, redeem what has been lost, but the end is always, God, nevertheless, not what we want, your will be done. We believe you're able. You can heal this cancer. You can turn this hardened heart and restore this marriage. You could bring somebody back from the dead. We believe you can. Now, God, do what you think is best. Your will be done. And don't we see this modeled in Jesus himself? When he's at that same place in his journey that Paul's at, where he's there in the garden praying, his disciples are falling asleep, and he's getting ready to be arrested, put in prison, and killed. What does he pray before the Father? Through tears, sweating blood and anguish, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not what I want, but your will be done. And Jesus himself models submission in his prayer life. Now I want to pose a question to you this morning. Somewhat of a hypothetical. What if the people in your life who don't know God, the only, way that, the only thing they knew about God was what they overheard about him through your prayers? Who would God be to them? What picture would you paint for the people in in your life who don't know him. I know it's a hypothetical. But what would God look like to somebody who doesn't know him if the only way they got to know him was to overhear you praying? 
would God come off as like the cosmic Santa Claus? Right? If I do enough good things and I get on this list, God does what I want and gives me good things. But if I do a bunch of naughty things, he doesn't give me what I want. God be like the, the universal vending machine. You just hit the button for whatever you're hungry or thirsty for that day and out pops whatever you want. Is he the genie in the bottle? Right? You just got to rub the genie, rub the bottle. The genie comes out. Poo, what can I do for you? What three wishes can I grant for you today? What image of God would the people in our lives get from just overhearing our prayer life? Then I want to think for a minute about the way Jesus taught us to pray. Think about that. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's no one like you. Your kingdom come, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. On earth, in my life, right now, in this moment, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, right? Not asking for God to make us wealthy and overflow of money. I'm saying, God, give me what I need. Forgive me of my sins. He's a forgiver, right? As I forgive those who sin against me. Lead me not into temptation. God, I need help with the sin in my life. God, lead me away from temptation. Deliver me from evil. You see what a beautiful image of God that paints? And I would just just ask you to think about what, what portrait of God do you paint with your prayer life? In the end, Paul and Luke And I think the other believers, they eventually put the outcome of what happened to Paul in the Father's hands as he pressed forward, right? That's what they did. We can't talk you out of this. Let God's will be done. Putting things into God's hand doesn't mean things will go according to your plans. We have to remember that. When you put something in God's hands, what you're doing is you're letting go of it. You're submitting to God and you're letting go of that thing and you're trusting that what God does is better than what you want yourself. Now that's a, that's a crisis of faith, isn't it? Because if I let go of this, I might have to face a hard time. Like Paul. If I let go of this, it's out of my control, right? And I've got to trust that what God wants for me is better than what I want for myself. I'm saying that his ways are not my ways. His wisdom is higher than my wisdom. And in the end, I want what he wants for me more than what I want for myself. That's where Paul's at in his journey. That's what he's teaching us about prayer. Now, I already shared with you as an elder body how we strive to pray this way. We're not perfect at it. My hope is this, though, that we as individual members and participants in this church could become like the church we just read about. Get to the point where we realize, you know what? God's will is better. Never mind what we want in our own personal lives. God, your will be done. What would this church look like? Think about it. What would this church look like? What what impact would we have on the community around us if we all together collectively said, God, your will be done in my life? You want me to go have this hard conversation with this person? I'm going to. You want me to go invest in this person in the office that everybody else is irritated with? Nobody will spend time with? I'm going to do it. You want me to go and share the gospel? I'm scared to death, but I'm going to submit to your will. You want me to go serve? You want me to give generously to this person or this situation? If we as a church said, God, not what I want anymore, your will be done. I don't think we can imagine the impact it would have on our lives, our families, and the community around us. 
I want to I end today by doing what we're talking about, by praying. Okay? And I'm not going to pray out loud very long. I'm going to give you time to pray. And I don't know how this morning may have challenged you. Maybe um, the element missing from your prayer life has been that submission element. You've been going through all the other elements, and maybe today God showed you that what you need to add to that is in the end putting it in his hands and trusting. And so maybe there's a situation you've been praying about for a while, and that's what you need to do today. You need to just put it in the Father's hands and say, your will be done. Um, maybe, maybe you've just been doing a whole lot of supplication. Here's what I want, here's what I want, here's what I want. And maybe today you'd set that aside and just spend some time in adoration, thanksgiving, confession, and, and, and submission. And however you've been challenged today, I want to give you some room to do that, okay? So as I invite the worship team back up, I'm just going to invite you into a time of prayer. Um, our prayer partners are going to be at the back of the room. They wear like a little lanyard that says prayer partner. Um, they're always honored to talk with you and pray with you about anything going on. Put into practice what we're talking about today. So when we sing, you're, feel free to stand and go grab one of them and, and go into one of the prayer rooms and pray. If while we're singing, you just want to stay seated and pray, I want you to feel you have permission to do that, okay? We want you to have time to respond to how God's leading you. If you want to stand and sing, you can do that as well. Thanks, Zach. Let's, uh, let's prepare our hearts to pray. And as we do so, I just want you to take a minute and think about how God is challenging you this morning. God, we just confess this morning that so often our hearts look a whole lot like the hearts of these Christians we just read about in Acts 21. God, we, we pray, we weep, we beg oftentimes for you to do things, God, that are not in accordance with your will. God, while we know that that doesn't offend you or hurt your feelings, at the same time, we know that you've called us to, to let go and to submit. So God, we want to be a church that does that. Holy Spirit, would you meet with us now? Would you speak to us individually and challenge our hearts individually, God, that we could respond? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.